I recently found myself in the waiting room with an optometrist. I was getting my eyes examined. The doctor had just put these drops in my eyes to dilate my pupils. I had to wait 20 minutes in this waiting room while they dilated. And if you've ever had that done, you know it's it's not pleasant. It's uncomfortable. Everything is blurry. Your eyes are kind of bloodshot. And I'm sitting there wondering how I'm going to drive home when this whole thing is, is done. And this woman comes over and sits beside me and she says, hello. Now, I'm not feeling too chatty in this moment, so I just say a polite hi. She then begins to tell me how much she likes this eye doctor and how she thought he was one of the best. I say a polite, that's great, thank you. I said, you should work for him. And she said, I, I do. And it was just one of those weird moments. I replied with a, oh, I'm glad that worked out for you. In my head, I'm wondering what I'm missing here. She's being very friendly, sitting beside me, didn't feel like somebody trying to sell me a pair of frames. And then she asks me how my dog is doing. I was startled. This was completely out of context. I'm looking at this woman squinting through my huge pupils and I ask her, how do you know that I have a dog? And she says, well, it's because I'm your neighbor. I just live across the street from you. I couldn't believe it. How would I miss that? Even with my blurry vision, I should have picked up on this, her strong Irish accent, her knowing my first name, but, but I didn't pick up on any of the cues. Looking back, it all makes sense. I apologized to her and told her, you know, I had those drops in my eyes and I just wasn't connecting the dots. In fact, I couldn't see any dots at all. Life is sometimes like that. Sometimes we just aren't seeing clearly. We're just having trouble. And even when we are seeing clearly, there's a difference between being able to see something and being able to comprehend what it is we're seeing. This morning, we're about four weeks from Easter. And today, we're going to look at two stories that offer us a contrast, both in some ways about perception, about understanding, or about not understanding. We've been slowly making our way chronologically towards Easter, by following through some interesting stories in Jesus's journey after he announces his intention to go to Jerusalem, even though he knows that it will ultimately lead to his death. This morning, we find ourselves about 30 kilometers from Jerusalem, We're kind of in the suburbs, specifically outside a little town called Jericho. This town is on the main road heading towards Jerusalem. It most likely had rest stops, interact machines, a Harvey Swiss Chalet just off the main road, if those things could be possible. You see, these novelties theoretically would be there because this is a traditional route that pilgrims would take on their way to Jerusalem three times a year for important holidays. A short distance away in chapter 10 of Mark's telling of this story has the disciples following Jesus. But they're not alone. It's not just 13 of them. There's a large entourage following as well. And it only gets bigger as they pass through each small hamlet and village on their way. Here, Jesus will again tell his disciples that he's going to be handed over, he's going to be beaten, he's going to be crucified, but three days later, he's going to rise again. But, just like the other times Jesus has told them this, they're not really hearing it. And if they are, they just aren't comprehending it. I mean, how can they? These young men, most of them, likely teenagers, haven't experienced anything like what Jesus is describing. They're young and inexperienced at life. We're told that the Zebedee boys, John and James, the Sons of Thunder is their nickname, they come to Jesus asking for a favor. Jen touched on this a little bit last week in her message. They're just about ready to enter town. 
and they boldly ask that Jesus does something for them. Now Jesus is curious, so he asks, what is it you want me to do for you? And they ask if they could be awarded the highest place next to him in the age to come, in whatever is next. Literally, they're asking that one of them can sit on his right hand and the other on his left hand in the kingdom of God. Wow, this is a bold request. Jesus looks at them and realizes they have no idea what they're asking. And so he he tells them this. He says, can you drink from the cup that I'm going to drink from? Can you experience the baptism that I'm going to experience? Now, the response is interesting. They totally live up to their name, right? Sons of thunder. Here's what they say. Sure, why not? Literally in the Greek, it says they are that they, they respond by saying we are capable, we are strong, and we are willing. There seems to either be an overconfidence in themselves or an obliviousness to what they're asking. Or maybe both. Jesus responds, well, that's good because you're going to need to. He's already told them that if they want to be his disciple, they're going to have to deny themselves, pick up their own cross, and follow him where he's going, which is not just a place, but an experience. You see, the older you get, you begin to realize that death and resurrection isn't a date on a calendar. It's a human experience. I feel that Jesus shows us this in his death, that we don't need to be afraid, that if we end up losing our lives for the sake of divine love, What we find on the other side is far greater than anything that death could take from us. We find a meaningful life. Jesus' statement about denying herself, about carrying our cross, is found in Matthew's retelling, and it's filled with euphemism. Jesus is implying that if they truly want to be like him, they will need to give up their desire for control in every aspect of their life and be willing to let it all go in order to find a new life where Jesus is taking them. And that will require trust. Something they're struggling with, clearly. Something we all struggle with. The reason they don't want Jesus to go to Jerusalem is that they're having trouble trusting that anything good can come from such a terrible story. So they keep trying to rewrite it. They want a story without any struggle, not realizing that what that would mean by default is that that would be a story without growth. You see, these disciples are not unlike us. This old story we read is so transparent that we see right through it and find our own reflections looking back. The truth is, it's not that a life of faith has to be messy. It's that a life that isn't messy at times isn't a life. I think too that this cup and this baptism that Jesus is referring to in this conversation with James and John is part of the human experience. I think this is more than just a religious experience. To be alive means that we're all going to experience difficult things at some point, and more than once. But that also means that we can experience the joy of resurrection, the joy of life on the other side of death, and not just physical death. When it comes to awarding places of honor, what James and John are asking for, Jesus quickly clears that up. That's not what this is about. Trouble happens when the other ten hear of this. They hear that these disciples have asked this specifically and they lose it with James and John. And Jesus settles them down and he, he sets them straight. As Janva reminded us last week in her message, Jesus says, Hey, whoever wants to be great will become a servant. Whoever wants to be first among you must be willing to be last. I didn't come to be served, but to serve 
and to give my life away to free those who are bound. He's trying to change their perspective of a fundamental idea. When it comes to discipleship, it's all about serving. When it comes to life, it's all about growing. The discussion ends. At least the recorded discussion ends. They enter the village of Jericho. And after spending some time there, they leave the other side and continue towards Jerusalem. And as they're leaving this little town, they encounter a beggar. This beggar is perfectly situated. You see, pilgrims on their way to temple in Jerusalem might feel especially generous. And this has us meeting Bar Timaeus, which means son of Timaeus. This is a man who, because of some unmentioned circumstances, has lost his ability to see. And he sits covered in a beggar's cloak, clearly identifying him as somebody living in the margins. He hears the noise of Jesus, the disciples, this large crowd that seems to have grown even more since they entered the town on the other side. And Bar Timaeus asks those in the crowd what's going on. One of them says, Jesus the Nazarene is heading towards Jerusalem. And so Bar Timaeus cries out as loud as he can, Son of David, Jesus, mercy, have mercy on me. This is the first time that Jesus is called by this messianic title in all of the Gospels. And somehow this blind man is already showing a trust, a faith that this Jesus is, the Na- this Jesus the Nazarene is more than meets the eye. And it takes someone who can't see to understand that. Mark writes that many in the crowd try to silence this man, but he shouts all the more, Son of David, mercy, have mercy on me. Jesus finally stops. He calls for Bart Timaeus. He asks that he be brought to him. Someone goes and tells him that it's your lucky day. Get up. The Nazarene is asking that you come and see him. Mark says that the man throws off his cloak. He's basically throwing off the symbol of his poverty. He finds his way to Jesus, and Jesus asks, What do you want me to do for you? Rabbi, I want to see again, he tells Jesus. Then it's so, and it is your trust that has made you whole, Jesus tells him. And in that moment, the man recovered his sight and joined the crowd of people that were following Jesus to where he was headed. The next village will be Bethany, roughly 25 kilometers away. That arrival is known as Palm Sunday. For us, it will be three weeks from now. But we are in this crowd, and we're going to arrive in Palm Sunday together. And we will discover that there is something there for all of us. But let's just consider that in the span of less than a kilometer, in the span of most likely a couple of hours, we encounter at least two different ways of experiencing Jesus. And we're both of them. Truthfully, the disciples haven't suffered in years. They've been traveling with Jesus, a healer, a caterer at times. So of course, when Jesus says, oh, hey, there's going to be some turbulence, they've forgotten what that is like. They have an aversion to it now. And so we have the disciples avoiding discomfort. And in contrast, we have a blind beggar who at one point in his life possibly wasn't a beggar, but something happened. Tragedy. He lost his ability to see and therefore care for himself, provide. He becomes destitute and dependent on others to live. Yet this story tells us that Bartimaeus has no problem trusting Jesus. The fact that he calls out to him as son of David is a bold move. It's also a revealing one. Jesus even tells him that it's his trust that has made him whole. 
And after he receives his sight, Jesus says to him, go on your way. And this man chooses to follow Jesus. He becomes part of the crowd, following Jesus on his journey. What a strange couple of encounters bookended around this small village. It is as if this blind man ironically somehow perceives more than the disciples. And I wonder if it's because of his infirmity, his suffering, his life. His experiences have enabled him a different kind of perception. I think it, it is his desperation that has enabled him to trust more. What has he got to lose? I think it is the cup that he has had to drink from. It's the baptism that he has had to endure. Both of those phrases are euphemisms for experiencing hardship. Jesus uses them just earlier. The blind man is in a better position to accept something and eventually trust. And he experiences a form of resurrection, doesn't he? He experiences some life where there wasn't any before. Filled with joy, he then follows Jesus. And the words, Son of David, on his lips. I wonder if in a couple of weeks, if he's the one who encourages the crowds in Bethany to sing songs of praise as Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey. We witness something remarkable in this journey. If we're paying attention, we witness ourselves. For Christians who think that following Jesus means that he takes all of our hardships in life away, that it's all about health and wealth, you're not reading the story right. Jesus confronted that attitude 2,000 years ago, and he still confronts it. The gift he offers us isn't the absence of pain and heartbreak, but the presence of meaning and hope in the midst of it. That the final word has not yet been spoken. The opportunity to transform, to grow, to be stretched, to become more than the circumstances that have paralyzed you, that have blinded you, that have bound you. That's what Jesus is talking about. You see, growth without wisdom is only height. Growth with wisdom is all about depth. When Mark, in chapter 8, verse 34, records Jesus saying that we must deny ourselves and we must pick up our own cross and follow him, he's saying that we need to deny our agendas for what we think a safe life looks like. Because we're not here to be safe. We're here to become all that we're meant to be. The butterfly was once a caterpillar. And I think that the disciples at this point are literally thinking that they're immortal. As long as Jesus is with them, he can turn water into wine, he can multiply the fish, he can calm the storm, he can heal the sick, he can raise the dead. We are all set. I think they're thinking that because I've thought that. Haven't you? God in your life means you're untouchable. I struggled with being diagnosed with cancer two years ago. It was unfathomable. Do you know what helped me comprehend it? Sitting in the cancer clinic beside a 16-year-old and a 30-year-old because apparently it wasn't part of their plans either. I think the disciples may believe that Jesus was healing just so that the sick could become better people. But that's where they're wrong. We can see that it isn't their healing that transformed them. It was their suffering. In some cases, the healing just helped them and others realize it. Jesus implies here, guys, there is something you're going to need to learn. And in order to learn it, you're going to have to endure it. Faith and trust is something that you'll have to experience to understand. This is most likely why many begin to practice a faith during difficult times. The blind man, he had a head start. Resurrection is 
easier to understand when you have something that has died. Hope, joy, faith, trust, when these die, resurrection is an easier concept. These are the disenfranchised things that we grieve, that we've lost. These are also the things that Jesus wants to resurrect in our lives. And he will offer us a new perspective so we can comprehend it. When you read these two stories that are back to back, you realize that Jesus basically says the same thing to James and John that he says to this blind Bartimaeus. Check it for yourself in chapter 10. He asks them both, what do you want me to do for you? Ironically, they both should have answered saying the same thing. We want to see. James and John and the rest of the disciples should have asked to be able to see how this tragedy he constantly speaks of can be anything but bad. And I get it. I see myself in their desire for a shortcut to maturity, to growth, to transformation, a shortcut to resurrection that bypasses any death at all. And there are, there are shortcuts in this life, for sure, for many things, except maturity. Wisdom only comes via discomfort of some sort. What I pity more than those who are suffering are those who never have. It has left them unable to truly feel. And we are most likely asking the same questions of our circumstances. How can this be good? Jesus would look at us and say, come with me, you'll see. And if we're paying attention, even in the difficult times, we are offered sight. We are offered the ability to see a beauty that was hidden before. And when the disciples can't see any hope in the disruption that Jesus speaks of, they fail to offer hope to those they pass who are desperate. And Jesus stops. He hears those calling out in their darkness. And they trust Jesus in their pain, which makes it easier to follow. But we're scared. We can't see any beauty in this. Jesus will tell us the secret that a blind beggar seems to know. That you can follow Jesus and still be blind. It's in the trusting that you will see.